Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Judd Brewer is a New York Times bestselling author, neuroscientist, addiction psychiatrist, and thought leader in the field of habit change. He is the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, where he also serves as an Associate Professor. He is the Executive Medical Director at ShareCare, Inc. and a research affiliate at MIT. Dr. Brewer has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. His new book is called Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. All right, Dr. Judd Brewer, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, Judd, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation where I hope we can really explore some of the, the core themes in your new book, Unwinding Anxiety. Of course, as a psychologist, I've read a ton of books and, and articles on anxiety. And I have to say it was so refreshing and, and eye-opening to dig into this very different narrative on anxiety. Your model really, really got me thinking about how we approach anxiety as clinicians and what we could do differently to, uh, to get better outcomes. Okay, so I guess just to start, you know, on the podcast, we've spoken a lot about the evolutionary value of emotions, namely that there are no negative or positive emotions. There, there are simply those that are pleasant or unpleasant. And you, of course, make the same point in the book. Uh, from your perspective, when does adaptive anxiety turn the corner into self into becoming a self-defeating habit of sorts? Yes, I think that's a great question. I think it turns the corner pretty quickly. <laughs> you know, if you look at the research, there really isn't any or much, if any, research suggesting that anxiety is adaptive. You know, it's kind of this, you know, our survival brain, you think of our ancient survival brain, you know, helps us find food, avoid danger. Layered on top of that, this newer part of the brain, the neocortex helps us survive through project, you know, for, um, through kind of taking past information, projecting it into the future to kind of make simulations and, and uh, try to uh, predict the future. And that, so all of that's adaptive, all of that's helpful. You know, that's pretty well described. Where it goes awry is, you, know, you think of the ancient brain uses food as a substrate, you know, so when, when we don't have food, our stomach rumbles and we go get food. You can think of the neocortex needing in, food is inform, or information is food for the brain. And so when we don't have information as, as a way to predict the future, we go and look for information to predict the future. When we don't have information, where there's a ton of uncertainty or something can't be resolved, that thinking brain starts to spin out of control, you know, kind of go off the rails into anxiety. And in fact, that's been shown pretty clearly, I think, that um, to it's harder to think and plan when we're anxious. So I'm not sure that I haven't yet found an adaptive function of anxiety. I think it's just, you know, it's just part of the brain that's kind of gone slightly off rails uh, from adaptive to, you know, just kind of, you know, drive hitting the foot on the gas when the when the uh, the, the car is not in gear, so to speak. Yeah, I think one of my favorite cognitive restructuring, I guess, sort of mantras or tools when I'm working with clients is something to the effect of, well, what would the world look like if everybody had to exert the same level of worry or anxious preparation in order to make their life run successfully? 
I mean, we don't have to look too far to other people to see that an excessive amount of worry is not really actually necessary in order to make life work. Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. And, and you can also look at the opposite of worry or anxiety. You know, when are we performing at our best? Often in psychiatry and psychology, we're, we're talking about pathology, you know, what's wrong. But I think it's really helpful. I love the positive psychology movement, you know, Marty Seligman and all those folks, where they emphasize all these great things about our minds and about human nature. And so if you think of some of the, you know, what's peak performance, I think of flow, you know, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's concept of flow. When somebody's in flow, they are so immersed in what they're doing, there's not even somebody there to get anxious. And so if you look at the extreme opposite of anxiety, I think flow is a great example of how anxiety really is not helpful. Absolutely. And I mean, I think related to that, I think we have really unhealthy narratives about uncertainty. I mean, if you think about uncertainty as a concept, there's a lot of amazing things that flow out of that as well. But we, our brain seems to be very leveraged on uncertainty being this bad thing. And, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Like we're hedging against bad things. If you win, happen to win the lottery or you find a bag of money on your doorstep for no reason in the morning, that's typically not a calamity, but obviously we're, we're hedging for bad things. What, what do you think about that idea of maybe reframing uncertainty to look at the, the, the fulsome nature of uncertainty and the gifts that can come with that. I love that. And so let's take a pragmatic example again, going, you know, let's think of our ancient ancestors. And so if they, uh, <laughs> if they avoided uncertainty, they'd starve to death pretty quickly because, you know, they always had to switch between, you know, exploit and explore, right. And so they would explore until they found a food source and, and then they would exploit that food source and then when that food source became depleted, they would go back to explore, explore mode. So they were constantly going back and forth between, you know, kind of certainty and uncertainty based on their conditions. So here, you know, in modern day, I think uncertainty is really helpful for us to learn because the world is always changing. And I think, I think we're learning, we're actually unlearning a, a degree of distress tolerance, you know, because uncertainty feels uncomfortable, which is what prompts us to go out and get information. It's kind of like hunger makes us feel uncomfortable, which prompts us to go seek more food. And so with that uncertainty feeling unpleasant, we could go and actually lean into that uncertainty and learn, say, oh, this is different. What can I learn from this? But in fact, I think society is teaching us to use our weapons of mass distraction, you know, our phones, to uh, placate ourselves, to distract ourselves, you know, and say, oh, this is uncomfortable. Go, you know, go distract yourself on your phone. And so, in fact, you know, when there's uncertainty, we're more likely to either run back to the safety of the cave, you know, of our, of our comfort zones, or freak out in panic mode and move into our panic zone because it's so uncomfortable, just not used to being with uncertainty. Yet here, I think, we could take that third path, take the road less traveled these days, which is to move into our growth zone. And instead of going, oh, no, you know, this is uncertain. This feels unpleasant. We can go, oh, this is different because the only certain thing is that there will always be uncertainty. <laughs> so it's the more we can learn to tolerate the distress and to lean into that, uh, the more I think we can grow and thrive. I want to fact check something with you that I believe I had read a while ago you know, as mammals, we have both prey and predator circuitry. And the idea is when we voluntarily lean into a stressor, it activates more of that dopaminergic approach kind of pathway versus when we feel like a stressor is foist upon us, it's activating more of that norepinephrine, adre adrenaline, cortisol, fight or flight sort of pathway. 
And, you know, I see this with clients when I can get them to really in a values driven way, lean into some of the work that we're doing. It has a very different mindset to it. It's like that kind of growth mindset, I believe that you talk about in the book and that you just referenced versus sort of more white knuckling through, you know, it, it it's harder for the kind of learning that needs to happen to take place in that fight or flight kind of mindset. So yeah, it, from a neuroscientist perspective, have I got that remotely right? And if so, or if not, what's the clin- clinical applications or how do we, how can we use that kind of data? Yeah, I'm not sure that it lines up across this dopamine versus norepinephrine or other trajectories in that way. You know, dopamine is really there to help us learn things. So, you know, we find food, we get this dopamine spritz that says, remember where this is. And then that dopamine firing transitions from, you know, when it's regular, when they're, when, when we're in exploit mode, it starts shifting to anticipating getting the receipt of that, of that rewards. So it, it urges us off, you know, out of the cave to go eat the food. So that's not really, I don't think that fits that well with, with whatever this paradigm is you're talking about, but the paradigm itself, regardless of the neurochemistry. So let's, let's place that off to the side. I think that's something that we can explore and if I'm if I'm understanding what you're saying, and stop me at any moment if I'm not, the here we can look at you know if you think of that driven quality, that white knuckling, um, let, is it fair to call that willpower when we're kind of forced something? Is that what you're talking about? Exactly, like every fiber of our body is saying no, but you know for whatever reason we push through regardless. But it feels yeah. incredibly unpleasant. Yes, it's incredibly unpleasant. And it's also not very efficient. So <laughs> for anybody that's been on any diet plan, they know they know what you're talking about, right? That's why it's called yo-yo dieting because we can grit, you know, we can grit our way through something for a little while and then we fail. One, not only is it unrewarding, it doesn't feel good, but it's it's extremely depleting in terms of energy. So here I would say, you know, if you look at it that way, we could just approach it from the what does it feel like? There's a contracted, constricted, driven quality to it. But what you're talking, this other piece that you're talking about has more of an open growth mindset quality to it. So here, you know, my lab actually did a study. We haven't published it yet, but we did a study looking at a bunch of different mental states to see which ones feel closed and which one feels which ones feel open or expanded. And then we asked, you know, which were more rewarding. It's probably a no-brainer, but we have to do the studies to prove it. Uh, when somebody is grit, you know, when they're in in willpower mode, feels closed, it's less reward. Excuse me, it's less rewarding. It doesn't feel that good. Then when they're in, when they're curious, when they're connected, when they're even in kind mode set, mindset. So here, I think the brain probably has a natural reward hierarchy where it's gonna. It just feels better to be in these more open states. It's certainly less depleting. And in those moments, we can actually tap into our capacity to be really open to learning the most. And so there, I would say there's a there's a connection between reward, you know, our brains are we're gonna do things that feel more rewarding, and also this growth mindset or feeling open, uh, feeling more expanded. And so I think there's a lot to learn from that. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. And those are some concepts that I want to come back to uh, in a moment. I want to just rewind my own mental tape a little bit and check in on some more fundamental things. 
Judd, can you talk a little bit about how anxiety and associated cognitive processes and behaviors can unwittingly get turned into bad habits? I, I really, really like the, the, the way that you laid this, uh, laid this out. And maybe even give an example of some common anxiety habit loops or worry or rumination habit loops. So I guess, like, how are they formed? And then what are the kind of things that we see as clinicians that we can be looking for from this loop perspective? Yeah. So, so this was something maybe I slept through a class in medical school or just never learned it. But this was something that I I kind of learned just a couple of years ago when we were actually my lab was doing studies with overeating uh, and helping people uh, overcome overeating using app based mindfulness training programs. And somebody said, you know, anxiety is actually triggering me to stress eat. Can you create a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, well, I generally prescribe medications but it put a bug in my ear to start looking into this. And it turns out there's a really nice research literature from the 1980s suggesting that anxiety can actually be driven like any other habit. And this really caught my attention because I'd never thought about anxiety that way before. And I knew, you know, after doing a lot of research for years, I knew a lot about habits and how to change them. So I tried to bring those two together. We can think of anxiety as being driven like other habits so a habit needs three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So if we go back to this, you know, the ancient ancestors, you know, you see the food, there's the trigger, you eat the food, there's the behavior, and then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. Anxiety can be driven the exact same way. So anxiety is the trigger, the feeling of anxiety. The behavior, let's just use the one that drives anxiety directly is worry. So we start worrying as a mental behavior. And then the re reward or the result is that we feel like we're in control, or at least it feels like we're doing something, even if we aren't really in control. And that feeds back to the next time we feel anxious, it triggers our brain to do that behavior again. It's basic reinforcement learning. You know, We do a behavior that makes unpleasant things go away. So the, the other habits that I've seen, especially over the last year, that are these avoidance behaviors. I've seen stress eating, you know, what is it, the quarantine 15 or the quarantine 30 now where people gain weight uh, because they are stress eating when they're anxious, just like, just like my patient. Uh, they're drinking, we see people drinking alcohol more. We see people going on social media more. We see people binging on Netflix more. So there are a bunch of behaviors that we're seeing that fit the same habit loop mechanism. You know, they feel anxious, they do X, whether it's worrying or procrastinating or overeating or drinking alcohol, and then they get this avoidance or this distraction or this brief relief that feels better than the anxiety itself. Rinse and repeat. That's how we all form habits around anxiety. So I think what's really interesting as a clinician, and I think that model makes complete sense, What's really interesting for me as a clinician is that long-term after two, three years of people engaging in that rinse and repeat pattern, they're in really rough shape. You know, there's all kinds of sort of adjacent problems that are creeping up. They've become depressed. Perhaps there's problems at work, problems in the primary romantic relationship. So how is it that the sort of, let's say, longer-term consequences of that loop, which gets reinforced on a very short-term scale, how do those longer-term consequences escape sort of the brain's perception, you know, in terms of integrating that into the overall formula? Yeah, isn't that an interesting question? I mean, so the, the short answer is that's not how our brains are set up. Our brains are set up for immediate rewards because we don't know if we're going to be alive in 10 years, you know, think of our survival brain. It says, I got to get food today. I got to avoid danger today. 
And so, you know, if, if our brains were set up for long-term survival, nobody would ever start smoking (laughs) (laughs) as an example. So here our brains say, well, you know, I, I really should quit smoking, but maybe I won't be that one that gets cancer. And it's hard to even imagine what it's like to feel like in, until we're the one that actually gets cancer. And we're like, wow, this really sucks, you know, or emphysema or whatever it is. And so here our brains are really focused on the immediate rewards. And there's this whole system called delay discounting where you can mathematically calculate the, this discounting curve for how, how strong a reward has to be in the future for us to actually pay attention to it because we are so focused on the near term. Uh, and, and tons of research, you know, Warren Bickle and others have done really nice research showing this. So the, the, that long answer to your short question was, you know, our brains are really set up to look at what's right in front of us. Ironically, <laughs> we, we, tend to, we tend to daydream. We tend to be focused on the past and the future in the present moment. And so even though our brains are set up for immediate rewards, those immediate rewards can be focusing on the past and focusing on the future. And anxiety is one of those pieces where, you know, think of anxiety as fear of the future. And so when we get caught in a habit, ironically, there's this reward of worrying (laughs) that is focused on future behaviors or future outcomes, because we're not sure what's going to happen. Right. And I want to leverage your knowledge as an addiction specialist. It's not an area where I have a ton of expertise, but I've, I've heard this sort of notion of wanting versus liking. Right. Mm-hmm. And that there's a lot of wanting that will lead up uh, to someone engaging in a behavior. And then once they do it, especially if they're quite far down the road of addiction, there may not be any liking whatsoever. And, you know, the people might be using a substance or engaging in a habit and, mm-hmm. you know, like wanting to do it, but realizing that there's no actual reward on the other side of that threshold. Uh, is that a thing? Can you, can you, can we map that sort of same construct or process onto this loop that you're talking about? Again, especially thinking about clients where, They've come to see me after a year or so of struggling and they're just, you know, they're like, I know this makes no sense. I don't want to do it, but yet I keep engaging in it. Is that wanting versus liking a helpful construct? I think it is a very helpful one. And there's a lot of research from mice to men to mice, from mice to hum, humans. Uh, Kent Barrage is one of the first folks uh, that really differentiated this in animal models where they, we can literally differentiate liking versus wanting. So you can think of the, the hedonic quality of something, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, and that's separable from the driven quality that says do something, right? And so if they're, if they're pleasant things, they can just be pleasant or we can, they can be pleasant. We're like, I want that. <laughs> there can be unpleasant things and our brain can say, I don't want that. Get that out of here. And, and that separable element uh, you know, probably highlights one of the dichotomies here. That wanting piece seems to be dopaminergically mediated. And so, for example, you know, clinically, I see this with my patients. They might try an opioid or heroin or a cocaine, and there can be this pleasant quality, this hedonic quality comes, that comes with it. When they get addicted, they're generally moving from a lack, from a deficit, because their brain is in withdrawal, and it's saying, go get this. And that lack is a drive. That's where the wanting comes in, where we want to smoke that cigarette to get the nicotine, or we want to uh, get the heroin if we're, you know, if we're in withdrawal or something like that. All of that is coming from a deficit. We're not feeling good in those moments. And it's, it's purely wanting. There's no liking there. And so I think that construct is very helpful. 
the narrative at the moment, and even before COVID, is that the prevalence rates of anxiety, you know, were, were going through the roof or are going through the roof. What does the data say about this? And if it does turn out to be true, are there any factors related to modernity or a modern society that you feel could be nudging us in the direction of getting mired down in these anxiety habit loops? Yes, I would say even BC before COVID-19, which seems like ancient history. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, there was pretty good documentation that anxiety was on the rise. And then we saw huge spikes in, in during the pandemic. And I think a lot of that is related to uncertainty. You know, our, our brain just doesn't deal with uncertainty well, and it starts, you know, it starts to spin out into anxiety. So I think Unfortunately, we had a very large naturalistic experiment where we saw it borne out in the data. You know, uncertainty, think of fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety, right? And so a lot of fear out there, a lot of uncertainty, huge amount of anxiety. Now, I think that there's a multiplier there where, you know, think of our ancient ancestors when there was danger, when there was fear, you know, let's say they were being chased by the saber-toothed tiger or whatever. There was no deep fake saber tooth tiger. There was no chat or, uh, you know, think of it as a false information uh, platform on social media saying, oh, you know, saber tooth tigers, they're really not dangerous, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas in modern day, we've seen this play out even in the, in the last year where people have been stoking uh, misinformation around how dangerous the uh, the COVID nineteen is, for example, or how unhelpful you know public basic public health measures are, which is ironically you know increase the death rate. So here we have to sort through not only a huge amount of information because we have an unprecedented we have unprecedented access to information, but on top of that we have to sort through disinformation. So not only is it, you know, it's like, oh, I have to read all these things and I can assume they're true. It's I've got to read through all these things and listen to all these things. And I've got to sort through who to believe and who not to believe. That, boy, talk about an anxiety provoking and anxiety producing uh, mechanism. We've got it all. It's, it's a ton of information, a ton of uncertainty. And then all of that is compounded by social media and disinformation. What a formula for you know, an anxiety epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I'm going to draw a parallel to depression here and some things I've been thinking about. If you look at a depressed client's life, they have uncertainty where there should be certainty and they have certain, they, and they have too much certainty where there should be a little bit of uncertainty and surprise. Right. So like, and I find we've all been sort of artificially pushed into the kind of this depressed paradigm where basically we don't have enough sort of pleasant surprises going on. And we have too much unpleasant surprise going on, I guess, if that makes sense. We don't have the right blend of those two elements. So I guess a, a, the question here for you is nothing is ever simple. We talk about, you know, there's there's being optimistic and being positive, but then there's so-called, like, say, toxic positivity, right? Where it's just right. it just turns the corner and seats us to have value. Do you think there's such a thing as maybe like a toxic uncertainty versus more constructive uncertainty? Is there a kind of uncertainty that we should be aiming for that would promote growth and not just plunge us into irreconcilable levels of uh, data overload? Here, I would say that, and, and I might change my tune in a minute, but my immediate response there is, it's really how we're dealing with the uncertainty. And so if we are so uncomfortable with the uncertainty, that can spin us into anxiety and panic and all of that. 
if we can learn to tolerate the uncertainties, regardless of what it is, it helps keep our thinking brain online so that we can actually work with it in a more skillful manner. So here I would say how we're relating to the uncertainty is probably a key aspect to how we work with it. Just to go back to the habit loop for a second. So habit loops, of course, you know, again, they're a key tool that you introduce early on in the book. Can you, can you speak just a little bit more about their structure and, and value as far as developing maybe like a mindful awareness of the dynamics underlying our anxiety-driven cognitive and behavioral processes? So here I would say awareness is key for everything. <laughs> and to break that down a little bit more, you know, I split the book into three sections. You know, this first section is around helping people understand and map out their habit loops around anxiety. And I give some examples of some of my patients who came into my clinic who'd been having anxiety for decades, like three decades, and didn't know how their mind worked. And so here we can bring awareness in to start to just map out these habit loops. In fact, we I, I found this so helpful in my clinic. I just created a habit mapper and put it online. It's Anybody can download it for free from mapmyhabit.com. And the idea is, you know, anybody can map out what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result. Let's use anxiety as an example. They can print out this thing and they can start going through their day. And as they notice that they're worrying or as they notice that they're procrastinating or stress eating or whatever, they can take that behavior, map backwards what triggered it, and then map forwards. What am I getting from this? That awareness helps illuminate the process so they can see how it's self-driven. As a concrete example, I had a patient who came in who wanted to quit smoking after 40 years. We calculated the number of times he had reinforced this habit loop. Are you ready? 293,000 times. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And he, he wasn't aware of it. He didn't know it, right? Because he didn't, he didn't know these basic reinforcement learning processes. Just awakening to that is tremendously helpful for folk. it's, it, folks. It's really, you know, it's empowering. Uh, to be able to just see that. So that's that's that first piece there. And then we can take it from there. We can start to see, oh, what am I getting from this? How rewarding is this Is this worrying or whatever? And then we can even take it farther from there. Perfect. Yes. And I definitely want to break down sort of second gear and third gear as you, as you speak about. Just before we get there, you know, willpower, uh, habit substitution, stimulus control, environmental manipulation. These are all strategies that you speak about in the book as being really quite oversold with respect to their ability to affect change. And I think this will come as a great disappointment to many, but, but I think also accepting this reality opens up new possibilities for change, right? We can get out of, we can sort of leverage what in acceptance of commitment therapy we call creative hopelessness, right? We can give up on strategies that simply aren't going to pay off. Can yeah. you, can, Judd, can you briefly outline why you feel each of these strategies is fundamentally flawed in their own way. Yes. And I'm basically just highlighting a lot of research that's out there. So I'm not trying to deliberately be controversial. I'm a clinician, just like you are. You know, I want to help people and I don't want them to go in dead end directions. And so there's now a fair amount of research suggesting that willpower is more myth than muscle, as an, as, as an example. And this is where, you know, yo-yo dieting and all, all the things that we've talked about. It's, you know, the prefrontal cortex, if there is willpower, uh, it relies on the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the youngest and the weakest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective. It's the first that goes offline when we get stressed. Anybody that has a habit of stress eating knows this. <laughs> you know, it's kind of baked into the definition of stress eating. And so using willpower to 
break a cycle of stress eating is almost by definition futile. You know, it might, it might work for a couple of times, but generally it fails. So that's, you know, if you look at the neuroscience, you know, willpower is not baked into the equations of how habits form and how they change habits. Uh, with some of these other examples, you know, it's, it's the, you know, one is, oh, if, environmental manipulation. If you just don't, if you don't want to eat ice cream, don't have it in the house. When people have actually done the research on this, I have it myself, but I'm just summarizing some of the literature. Uh, it turns out that the people that are good at doing that are the folks that are good at setting habits in the first place. And right. so they're kind of genetically set up to win that, to win that race or to win that lottery. And so we can say, oh, that makes sense. But for the rest of us that don't, that aren't set up that way, it's kind of like, wow, you know, I wish I could play basketball in the NBA, but I'm just not tall enough, you know? And so that person can play. I'm not going to, I'm never going to be able to play, but I get it how they're, you know, they're going to be good at basketball and I'm not. Same is true for most of us. You know, we don't have the, the genes that those select few have to be able to set up their environments that way. What were the other, uh, there was one other uh, strategy you mentioned. I think substitution is one that people use all the time, right? Like they'll give up a problematic behavior and adopt compulsive running or exercise or something that has a little bit of a better, more socially sanctioned, you know, mm -hmm. but, but equally plugging into the same pathological pattern, I would say at the end of the day. Yes. And you're, you're highlighting what the problem is right there. So I have tons of patients. I shouldn't say tons. I have some patients who have given up cocaine and they've started compulsively exercising. For example, uh, a lot of folks who quit smoking using uh, uh, substituting candy instead of, eat, of smoking cigarettes. And as you point out, they're just substituting one addiction for another and they're not actually uprooting the, the root cause of the addiction itself. So if we wanna change a habit for good, we have to actually get at the core mechanism itself. So avoidance substitution strategies ultimately fail because they don't actually target the core root mechanism itself. They just provide something, as you point out, that's a little more socially acceptable. So for example, if somebody starts exercising, they become addicted to exercising, substituting that for a drug of abuse, when they get injured, and often they will, they will get injured because they are compulsively exercising, their brain says, well, can't exercise anymore, back to the drugs, because they haven't actually learned to work with the cravings themselves. Absolutely. I want to ask you a question that I certainly have some intuitions around and clinical knowledge, but I want to approach it just a little bit more open-endedly. Imagine as a thought experiment, we have two people and they both stumble into a uh, anxiety habit loop sort of paradigm. One person can walk away from that habit loop and not it doesn't ever become problematic. Another person gets mired down in it. Three years later, they look up and they've, they've you know cultivated a very sort of problematic anxiety disorder of some kind. What are the factors that predict someone developing maybe a problematic loop versus not? Do we know this? I'm sure there are genetic predispositions where some people are going to be more looped in, so to speak, or, or sucked in or hooked than others. Uh, the genetics, you know, people have been trying to study the genetics of addictions, for example, for years and haven't done a great job of really isolating, you know, single genes or gene loci or polymorphisms or things like that. There are some that may play a role here. So, you know, 
here it can be helpful to think about the genes, but we don't have control of our genes anyway. So I often like to focus on, you know, what do we all have access to, which is our own, our minds. And, and we, so some of us have, you know, won the genetic lottery, uh, regardless of whether we won it or not, we all can, we all can work with our minds. And if you look at the formulas that, uh, that drive reward value and, and reward processing, it basically, you know, it's a, it's a relatively simple formula that was developed by these two researchers, Rascorla and Wagner, back in the 70s. And basically what they say is current reward value, which is going to determine whether we continue a behavior, we really get sucked into it, is based on the previous, previous reward value plus an error term. And that error, we can get into the error term when we talk about second gear, but that error term is a critical piece that keeps things updated uh, and driven forward uh, in the future. The other thing is we can set up habits pretty quickly. And so that error term kind of drops to zero if we're not paying attention, we're just gonna habitually act out an old behavior. As an example, you know, let's go back to smoking. People in my studies and even in my clinic have tended to start smoking around the age of 13, 12, 13, 14 uh, on average. And when they come to see me, you know, they're, it's decades later and they've, they don't even pay attention as they smoke anymore. It's really, you know, they get that dopamine deficit. They've got a cigarette in their mouth and smoked before they're even consciously aware of it often. We know that trauma is something that will predict addiction. Causational or cor correlational is, you know, maybe a different question, but could, could trauma perhaps work in this system by playing with the reward contingencies on some level or setting up sort of uh, a certain sort of uh, milieu in which reward is perceived differently or reward deficits are set up? I think it could. I, I would say that even more solid are the data suggesting that trauma sets up compensatory habit loops. So I, I'm thinking of a, a patient that, that I had in my clinic who was referred to me actually for binge eating disorder and about the age of eight. So both her parents had survived the Camarillo's genocide and then emigrated to the United States. So they had their own trauma histories. And her, her mom started emotionally abusing her around the age of eight. And the, what she, so she had the trauma of her mom emotionally abusing her. She set up this habit around eating. And as she put it, she could eat to numb herself. And so there, it set up the environment for her to, to start binge eating. And she, you know, she's about 30 years of age when she came to see me. By the time she came to see me, she was binging on uh, entire large pizzas, 20 out of 30 days a month. And you can think of that, that loop. So the negative emotion would be the trigger, the binge eating would be the behavior. And then her reward was numbing out, as she put it, numbing herself. So there, I think there's pretty solid evidence. And I see this a lot, unfortunately, too much in my clinic where, you know, in my addiction clinic, so many people have a trauma history and they've set up these compensatory mechanisms, whether it was alcohol, whether it was, you know, heroin, whether it was other drugs, whether it was risky behaviors as a way to numb themselves from, from the, the, the negative emotions, not only from the trauma itself or the repeated traumas, but also just the, the flashbacks and the, um, you know, and all of the negative emotions that resulted from it. Right. So if I understand correctly, if you're in, in an environment that is suboptimal, distressing, has trauma in it, 
it's going to create opportunities or then create the necessity perhaps of having to reach for things very quickly that are going to alleviate emotional distress, which may initiate a cascade of these habit loops getting formed very quickly and being reinforced. Yes. Yeah. It's a good way of putting it. And remember, it's just our poor survival brain trying to literally help us survive where it says, oh, this is unpleasant. Make it go away as quickly as possible. And so we reach for whatever it is that actually you know makes us feel better, at least for a moment. And then that can set up the habit. And that's where, you know, food can be so, uh, so reinforcing because it's often available. It can, you know, we can get these pleasurable aspects of it, or at least dopamine. It, it can feel good to eat and it can feel good to numb ourselves. And then it can, you know, that as an example can get set up pretty easily. All right. So second gear, updating our reward value system. I really love this idea. So the idea here is that through awareness, we really allow people to become attuned to the actual versus predicted rewards of engaging in a particular habit loop. This promotes disenchantment where people can really connect with the actual experience of worrying and rumination, for instance. For instance, it's actually not that pleasant if you break it down. Mm -hmm. So this goes back to Rescorla and Wagner. So you know, current reward values based on previous reward value plus an error term. Let's use a concrete example to highlight what, you know, what this math is suggesting. So let's say that I have set up the reward value of chocolate cake, you know, probably started in childhood, going to parties, associating that with ice cream and friends and presents and all of that. Now, if I go by a new bakery and I see some chocolate cake in the window and I go inside, you know, my brain is expecting that chocolate cake to have a certain reward value. If I eat that chocolate cake and it is the best chocolate cake that I've ever eaten, I get what's called a positive prediction error. That error term says, hey, that's better than expected. And my brain lays down in this memory that says, okay, remember that bakery and go back there as often as you can, okay? But if I eat the cake and my brain's like, eh, I've had better, there's a negative prediction error where my brain says, hey, remember that the cake here is not that great. And then I'm going to learn to not come back. This is true for if this is really the crux of how we change any behavior. Notice how in the equation, absent from this equation, childhood, willpower, you know, all of these things. So it, it's not that our childhoods aren't important and aren't important to learn from, right? I'm, I'm a card carrying psychiatrist. But if we want to change a habit, it's not about going back to our childhood per se. It's about seeing how rewarding a behavior is right now, bringing awareness in, this is where the mindfulness training practices come in, and seeing, is this really as rewarding as I'm expecting? So for example, we, my lab just published a study where we took this, this uh, mindfulness training app called Eat Right Now. We embedded a craving tool where we basically had people eat mindfully, paid attention as they ate, and we could measure the change in reward value over time. It only took 10 to 15 times of somebody paying attention as they overate for that reward value to drop below zero, as in they started shifting their behavior to not overeating. What this highlights is two really important things. One is that our brain is really plastic. You know, it doesn't take 20 years to undo a, a habit that you've had for 20 years, which makes sense because if we're being chased by the saber-toothed tiger, we don't have time to be chased, you know, 20 times or 100 times, right? We've got to learn pretty quickly. So our brains are tremendously plastic, which is really cool. And when we, all we need to change behavior is one simple ingredient, which is awareness. We just have to pay attention as we're doing a behavior. 
So I break that down into having my patients or the folks in our app-based mindfulness training programs ask a simple question. What am I getting from this? Right? Not intellectually, like, oh, smoking is bad for me. But what does it taste like when I smoke a cigarette? What's it feel like when I overeat? What do I get when I worry? You know, is it keeping my family safe? Is it solving a problem? No and no, right? Oh, but it's making me more anxious. When we see that result really clearly, that reward value drops because reward-based learning is based on how rewarding something is. It's not based on the behavior itself. It's based on how rewarding that behavior is. So that's what, you know, that's all the, the neuroscience behind the second gear process in a nutshell. And we've, you know, we've gotten 40% reduction in craving related eating uh, using these techniques in our Eat Right Now app. We got a five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking cessation. We could even line that up with brain mechanisms. Uh, with, we have this app called Craving to Quit. So there's a ton of science and the theory goes back to the 70s. We can actually test this today using app-based treatments and all of it comes back to one simple ingredient, awareness. Again, I love that model. I think it, it has really powerful implications for change, especially when clinicians are working with clients with long-standing problems where they're, like you said in the previous example with the fellow with the cigarettes, just like mindlessly, you know, quote unquote, going about these, these behaviors, yes. right? Now, one thing I want to ask you about from a clinician perspective is, do you ever come across instances where clients perhaps who aren't as psychologically minded or maybe have a different tilt on things, they, they're not able to connect with the negative consequences or negative experience that is so evident to anyone watching from the outside looking in? And, and if so, how can you, how can you help them to understand uh, perhaps the actual conundrum they're in versus the one they, they imagine that they're not in? So Cure, I don't know if it has as much to do with being psychologically minded as it does to simply paying attention. And so here, you know, across the scale, regardless of how psychologically minded somebody is, if they don't want to see the results of a behavior, they're not going to look. And so here, you know, it's really about helping people see very clearly what the result is. This is where I love practices like motivational interviewing, you know. Inadvert I would say implicit in that is helping people see how rewarding a behavior is. You know, what's the basic question that I would ask? You know, somebody smoking, I ask, well, why don't you smoke more? Which forces them right. to bring awareness to, oh, well, what do I get from smoking? Oh, it's expensive. It, you know, it gives me a smoker's cough, all this stuff. Oh, that's not very rewarding. Oh, you know, so it already starts to get into that realm. So I think it, there's a simplicity here that's not oversimplified, yet anybody can understand because these are such basic learning mechanisms. No, it makes sense for sure. Okay, so third gear, finding the bigger, better offer. I'll let you take uh, complete control on this one. So uh, <laughs> what's finding the bit, bigger, better offer? Why does that work? What are some examples of good, bigger, better offers? So this goes back to Rescorla and Wagner and this reward value in our brain. You know, our brain's going to do things that are rewarding. It's going to stop doing things that aren't. So in second gear, if we can help our brain see how unrewarding, say, worrying is or overeating is, that uh, we become disenchanted with that. And that opens the space for what I call this bigger, better offer. And so our brain is saying, okay, that's not so good. Well, give me something better. So here, instead of 
substituting. So we use the example of exercise, you know, right? It's not just any better offer. So exercise is certainly better than using cocaine or better than being addicted to heroin. Yet that in itself, we can, we can become habituated. We can still perpetuate the process. So the, the biggest, bestest offer, let's say, is something that is intrinsically rewarding and doesn't become habituated. And here, I think of it as two flavors. Uh, one is curiosity and one is kindness. And those can actually synergize. They can work together. So you know, it, it, here, we can think of anxiety, for example. So how does anxiety feel? How does worry feel? as a mental behavior versus getting curious about what, uh, what our physical sensations are when we're anxious. Curiosity, hands down, you know, it's a no brainer. It feels so much better. So for example, if we're anxious, we can, we can start to notice, oh, what's, what do I get from worrying? Nothing. And when those feelings of anxiety come up, we can get curious. Oh, what does this feel like? Instead of going, oh no, I'm anxious. Why am I anxious? And then getting stuck in that habit loop and go, oh, what does this feel like? Where do I feel it in my body? What is it made up of? And we can start to see, oh, it's tightness. Oh, it's tension. Oh, it's heat. Oh, it's this. And those components themselves, when we can see them clearly, aren't nearly as scary as this big, bad concept of anxiety. And we can also see, oh, these come and go. So we can start to relate to these differently simply by bringing in curiosity. The other flavor that I like of a bigger, better offer is kindness. So often we judge ourselves. We wake up in the morning, we're anxious, and we start worrying, why am I anxious? And what's wrong with me? And we start judging ourselves. So we can start to explore in second gear, what does that feel like? How's it feel to beat myself up or to judge myself? Not so good. It actually reinforces the process. Well, how's it feel to just be kind to myself? Oh, it feels a lot better. So here, both curiosity and kindness, they share that quality of opening to our experience which is naturally more rewarding than things like self-judgment and anxiety, which, which are more closed down or more contracted feeling. Again, I find it so interesting that our brain will reach for the self-loathing and the self-judging before it will reach to the self-compassion. Yeah. Any, any, any idea why that is sort of more immediately reinforcing than just, you know, if, if you can just sort of get a little bit further down that time horizon and get to the self-compassion, then you're really onto something. I will give you some baseless speculation, some BS. Sure, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my sense is there's a contributing factor here, which is societal conditioning. And so we see whether it's in the workplace, from our parents, from our friends, from social media, this accepted habit, because it's really a societal habit of beating ourselves up. You know, if we did something wrong, we see this in movies where people, they're like, oh, I should have done a better job. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do better next time. And we kind of beat ourselves up as a way that self-flagellation is some acceptable form of like, that's the appropriate response. So I think we, we probably are learning this maybe from a young age, by seeing it societally modeled, whether it's our parents, whether it's movies, whether it's social media and whatnot. And I think we could do the, the experiments where if we could suddenly push a button, hit that pause button on self-judgment or on this societal habit, and then we turn, we turn that and all the movies and all social media were about compassion and kindness, we could see if that suddenly outcompeted the uh, the self-judgment. And I would guess that it would do that pretty quickly. It certainly feels better, 
but I think it, there's just this huge flood uh, and and whole societal habit of doing this other, and, and it's a matter of slowly outcompeting it as we see that compassion actually feels better. I don't know. That's what I would say. I would be curious what your thoughts are. You're a good BSer. I'll give you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think this dovetails with the willpower piece, right? We yeah. have this sort of idea that you know, we're kind of inherently flawed and, and basically you got to wake up every day and start kicking ass and getting it right and make it for all your defectiveness. And if you could just do that, then you could finally be that person who you need to be. And a lot of us need to hold the funerals for our ideal or, or fantasized selves. It's not, it's not going to happen because, and that's okay. Like we don't need to be ideal to be lovable and acceptable and, and all those kind of things. But that seems to be an idea that rubs us the wrong way. It's like soft or getting off easy, you know? Absolutely. You know, and so here, maybe we can start uh, giving away t-shirts that say imperfect is the new perfect, you know, because the movies and <laughs> yeah. social media, even more now where we can com easily compare ourselves to others, we see everybody's perfect pictures. We don't see them, you know, when they first got out of bed in the morning. And so we have this yeah. ideal that, oh, the, everybody else is perfect. I'm not. Well, how about imperfect being the new perfect? I would, I would love to see that be the new societal meme. Absolutely. I'm going to start with myself before I project that onto anybody else. <laughs> See if I get that correct. Uh, Judd, just a couple more questions for you here. Is there anything that you feel that traditional cognitive behavioral therapy or associated therapies has particularly right or wrong with respect to the way that they conceptualize anxiety? It's a great question. I don't know the other treatments well enough. I was formally trained in CBT and residency, but that was a while ago. So I don't want to speak out of turn. One thing I will say that I hadn't seen, and maybe it's there, I just don't know of it. So I don't want to, I don't want to um, you know, say something that might not be true, but I really haven't seen this idea of anxiety driven as a habit in, in many, if any uh, treatments, and I might just have missed it, but that may be the piece that a lot of folks are missing. And I would love to see that incorporated if it isn't already incorporated into any treatment, because I think regardless of what the treatment modality is, just understanding the underlying mechanism is really helpful. I think the reward contingency is fleshed out. Like we talk about when I do exposure therapy with clients, we talk about how when we do, when you touch the toilet seat, say it's OCD, you know, it's going to feel very unpleasant at first, but we're going to, you know, we're going to push the time horizon out and to get to a place of confidence and, and better understanding, getting the data about the apparent danger of touching the toilet seat. What's not quite there is that narrative around how that behavior may have become established in the beginning. And I actually find your, your narrative to be quite uh, sort of stigma reducing and have a lot of compassion uh, embedded in it and really just sort of acknowledging our humanity and how susceptible we are to, to these loops because they make a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that. Cause I, I had a patient who she came up with, with her own reminder where when she would start to get in one of these loops, she would just, just say to herself, Oh, that's just my brain. And it had this compassionate tone to it where she could see it's not my fault. There's nothing wrong with me. This is just my survival brain. It kind of got off the rails a little bit, trying to help me survive in this, you know, in this situation. And that helped her bring the compassion to it, the humanity to it, the universality to it, and also to work with it because that would help her step out of the habit loop right in that moment with that reminder. 
Yeah. Isn't awareness such a double-edged sword, right? Because I'm thinking about, say, like a bear in the forest or a fox or a coyote or whatever. I mean, they're, they're, we don't really know exactly what their experience is, but they're just sort of operating. But humans sort of get a front row seat to the uh, to the gong show, right? Both the, both the we, we get the suffering that goes with engaging in these habits, but it's the observation and the awareness that also provides the possibility of escaping the suffering that comes from the awareness of what's going on. It's, it's very interesting. It is. And especially at the beginning, we actually built in a module in our unwinding anxiety program called Muddy Waters to warn people when they first start ramping up their awareness, it might seem like things are suddenly terrible. Well, in fact, it's always been that way and you just haven't noticed it. Exactly. But the reason I use that analogy is it's, it's like you've been kicking up a bunch of mud into the water that was clear. You kicked mud into the water. That mud was there. You got to wait for it to wash downstream and then there won't be more mud on the bottom. So when, you know, tumultuous things happen, you're not going to, it's not going to be muddy. So when we start to bring awareness in and start to see these things, we got to remember, oh, you know, this is just my heightened awareness now. And as I bring it forward, I think, as you're pointing out, as that mud washes downstream, I will learn to be more resilient. I will learn to work with more things as they come up because I will know how my mind works. Absolutely. I love that visual metaphor. That's great. Uh, Judd, uh, if people want to find you on the internet or learn more about uh, your books or your programs, where can they find you? I have a website that's drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com. We've got a bunch of free resources on there, including a healthcare provider course for any clinicians that are interested in learning more about mindfulness and habit change. I'm also on Twitter at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R, uh, Instagram. I think it's at D-R dot J-U-D. Uh, and then I've got a YouTube channel as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, Unwinding Anxiety is a phenomenal book. I think we just scratched the surface today. So although people may, although we may have reviewed a lot of the core concepts, I would really encourage people to go get the book and really drill down. There's a lot more that we didn't get to cover today. So thanks so much, uh, Judd, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, take good care. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.